As an adult survivor of child sexual abuse, he kept asking himself, is it truly possible to move through the shame? Is it possible to have a full life without depending on mind-numbing drugs and alcohol? And the most difficult question of all, do I tell? Hello, everyone. I'm Pamela Brewer, welcoming you to this edition of Mind Talk. My guest today is Larry Rule, author of Breaking the Rules, a memoir about child abuse, the pain and the healing. Larry, welcome to Mind Talk. Thank you so much. Larry, you have written a powerful and I would like to say really important book. Um, important because in particular so many men who have been abused don't like to talk about it, don't want to talk about it, and really find themselves feeling mired in the kind of shame um, that you experience. So thank you, uh, for, thank you for what you have created. And the book is entitled, again, Breaking the Rules, a memoir by Larry Rule. Uh, Larry, tell us about your decision to tell your story. It... Um... My decision to tell my story did not um, come easily to me. I was um, I was just about a year sober and struggling with um, with upcoming Father's Day uh, in that year, about four years ago. And as a way to get through it and not feel tripped up, um, I started to write in a journal. I had never written out completely what uh, had happened at the hands of my dad, and decided to write and. As difficult as it was, when I was finished, I couldn't help but to feel that something started to shift in me. Uh, but it did take me another six months to sit down and actually start to write again and to say more. Uh, but I knew that I, I felt like I was on to something and I could feel a shift in my body actually occurring uh, of feeling lighter. So that's how the process actually started in terms of coming to the decision to, to tell my story. You talk about um, the reasons that you hope, the things that you hope to accomplish in the writing of Breaking yes. the Rules. Talk a little bit about that. What did you want people to well, know? Yes, for in terms of, you know, it's funny, I'm, I'm going to jump into this, but uh, one of the questions that I get asked so often is, um, or assumptions that are sort of put on me, is that it must have been cathartic to write the book. Uh. And it actually um, wasn't. I will tell you that it was it was incredibly painful to sort of relive the experience and put words to it. And I struggled for, for about two years in that process. But what kept coming up was knowing that the, the more shameful pieces that I was willing to talk about or that I could talk about, I knew that those were the pieces that people were going to relate to and that in, in those pieces, that's where the healing could happen, both for myself and other survivors. So that's one of the things that I really hoped would be a takeaway, um, was that people would relate to something, certainly maybe not all of it, but something, an experience, a trigger, something that I described. Um, I was hoping to reach somebody that might be able to relate and feel a little more normal. One of the things that struck me about um, breaking the rules very early on was when you described your father as not the mythical, lurking, horrific 
a sinister person that people like to assume and tell themselves uh, predators look like. Say a little bit more about that. Yes, that um, I think that that uh, really was a challenge for me for so many years because I, the relationship with my dad um, for many years, I mean, my, my dad is just somebody that everyone likes. He's an incredibly likable guy. And uh, outside to anyone, we were this perfect family. And he just, um, from the time that I was very young, really drove home this father-son bond. And he was, he was not uh, anything like um, an externally like a monster or somebody who came across as abusive or angry or violent. He was a sensitive, sensitive thoughtful, caring man. And, um, and it, really, it really presented some challenges uh, for me personally because I, for so many years I thought, oh, my God, I must be crazy. And... Um, and unfortunately, I'm not. <laughs> the The shame and the confusion uh, that comes to be uh, for children of abuse, it, you know, the fact that you were able to describe him as friendly and fun-loving, I, you know, I think about the children who will talk about, the children as adults who will talk about um, abusers and feel guilty that there were times when they had fun with that person. Yes. It adds to the shame and the blame. Yes, that's right. And you know, I, I too had, I too had those moments. And because my father remained in my life up until about um, ten years ago, um, the older I got, the more confusing it all became. Because I was, as I was having some memory come back, I thought, oh, no, this could not have happened. This could not have happened. And I would continue to just push those feelings down. Um, but, yes, I mean, one of the, one of the ways that I, uh, one of the tools that I used to help me write this book was, go, was to go through old family photographs. Mm. And I would see these photographs of me with my dad. And I remember where we were and the times that we were, you know, experiencing and I really had to check in and say, what did that feel like then? And truthfully, even looking at those photographs, I still felt an enormous sense of shame. Talk a little bit, um, or talk a lot, your choice, about <laughs> uh, the sense of shame. It is such a complicated, heavy, burdensome experience. Uh, and, and folks on the outside looking in often don't really understand it. Sure. You know, the, the idea of shame um, can run so, so deep, and it certainly did for me. Um, I went through, I mean, we hear people talk about it, it was certainly my experience, where I went through uh, many years in therapy of really thinking that this must have been my fault, and therefore I felt ashamed. I felt ashamed of the fact that I was in, unhappy in my, in my own body, in you know, I had a difficulty looking in the mirror because I look like my father. And I, that was, truthfully, that was one of the hardest things for me is that I, I resemble him. And um, so that sense of shame that I carried, that I look like this, like my perpetrator, like this pedophile, was incredibly hard for me. And 
and a, and a level of shame that ran so deep and definitely contributed to my anxiety and my depression, my addiction. And, and shame in society. I mean, I did. I felt stained. I, I hate to use the term damaged goods, but that's how I felt for many years. And I felt and wondered, you know, did I ask for this in some way? Am I responsible? Um, and it took me a long time to realize and to really accept the fact that I was so young and that a child at that age is not asking for anything but to be nurtured and loved. And what age were you when the abuse again began? Uh, before I started kindergarten. The uh, We're talking right now about the abuse at the hands of your father. Your mother was fairly abusive uh, as well. Yes. My mother was physically abusive to both my father and my sister. She was never physically abusive to me. She... Um, she saw me as her ally from a very young age. I was her best boy, and uh, she pitted me against uh, my sister and my father, mostly my father, often. But in terms of her, her mental illness and her verbal abuse, I mean, it was, it was ongoing through my entire life. Uh, the physical abuse, I mean, she really beat my father, um, you know, devastating effects sometimes. Um, that was very difficult to live with, to be around. Uh, it often took me and my older sister to break them up. Um, so it was a house that was just fraught with, um, with violence. Um, and, you know, on the outside, again, um, my father was determined to make sure that we appeared as the perfect family. So anything that was visible or showed in any way or you know, police showing up to the house, we always had to have a sort of a unified excuse to prevent anyone from questioning. You talked about uh, a time when your um, mother would be scantily clad, cigarette in hand, <laughs> with your father beaten and bruised. Was that often an experience with your mother being scantily clad? Yes. Yes, it happened, um, you know, uh, Many, many times, especially, of course, especially during the summer um, when she would sort of come to life in a, in a new way, um, have the opportunity to be in a bikini or be in sundresses or be in a negligee at home. Um, yes. So, in fact, your mother um, was sexually inappropriate with you as well. Absolutely. It's funny to hear you say that and to hear you ask that. I, I cringe, honestly, still. Uh, you know, that's that's been difficult for, for me to uh, continue to spend some energy and focus on um, in terms of the other effects my mother's behavior had on, on me. Um, and that's definitely something that continues to unfold for me. Well, the, the fact that you speak to it 
and the book I think is important because um, as you likely know, as I know you know, so many young boys find themselves exposed to the abuses of their mothers, and yes. that takes its whole a whole other piece of pain and healing and complexity. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's it's a it's um it's a different complexity. Yes. And you know while we're while we're talking about this, I think one of the um, one of the effects of writing the book really helped me see that um, that abuse did occur at the hands of both of my parents. Yes. And, um, and there were many times that, you know, I've struggled feeling like I had a bullseye on my back. And, and that was, um, that's been a, that's been an interesting piece to untangle and challenging and challenging. In second grade, you found yes. yourself in particular trouble with your family what happened? I did. I um, I was struggling in school. I was exhausted. I was very very tired. You know the the fighting um, was incessant and kept us up very very late. Um, my sister and I breaking up their fights. And a teacher asked me to stay and um, after class and before recess. And she asked me if everything was okay at home. And she asked if I was. Um, you know, I talked about my parents fighting a lot. She asked if my father hit my mother or if they, or if they had hit me. And I said, no, but my mom hits my dad. And she gave me a hug, and, uh, and I felt safe in that moment. And by the time dinner came around that night, uh, my mother wasn't speaking to me or anyone, and my father asked to see me and my sister alone and lectured us and said that we were never to speak of anything that happened in our house to anyone outside the house, that, you know, we had a special family bond and that there were no problems going on that we couldn't solve together. And it was, um, it was a real lesson, and I never, I never did that again. And even my sister pulled me aside after and said, pleaded with me to please never do that again. And, um, and I didn't. I didn't. So you literally had no place to go. With, I did not. With all and the then, pain. Yeah, I I didn't. And until we sort of got involved in our local church, but that was short-lived also. When your dad was... Oh, let me interrupt myself for a moment. Sure. When your dad talked about the special father-son bond yes. that the two of you shared, he was not talking about something pleasant and loving. You know, what a great question. I think in many ways, um, because he shared so much of his, his distant relationship with his own father growing up, that it was all talk. It was, it was, this, it was this, rem, this constant reminder, or this, not even a reminder, I mean, I, I can say it now, but this brainwashing that was happening, that, that what we experienced together, he and I, was special, that it was safe, and that there was nothing wrong with it. You describe a time when your dad, if he was really upset with you, he would call you Karen. Mm -hmm. Yes. Interesting. Talk about that. (laughs) Yes. Yes. The first time.
time it happened, I, I, I remember I was so caught off guard. Um, but yes, he would call me by my mother's name. If I showed any ounce of um, impatience or temper or anger or frustration, um, he would call me by my mother's name. And um, as it was our, it's what started off as a, as a, as a secret code that he wanted with me to keep me in line um, with the way he felt I should be more along with the rule side. And, um, and he used that um, until, until our relationship came to an end. And, um, you know, into my early adulthood, he continued to do that um, in anything that, that I did or acted, even when I, you know, had my own house and my career, uh, he continued to do that. And that was one of the things that continued that was a constant reminder, uh, this body response that I would have, and I'd feel the pit in my stomach where I, when he would do that, I thought, oh, something is not right. Something is very, very wrong here. And did you think there was something wrong with you? Yes. Okay. So the not right and the wrong was you. Not your father, yeah. not your mother, not no. the horrific experiences of the household, but you. No. No, I took that on. Often as adults, when we hear of bad behavior by other people, um, we may wonder what was going on. And I think the reality is that we we do forget that people who are abusive have themselves likely to have been harmed in their own childhoods. Doesn't make it okay, doesn't make their behavior okay by any stretch. But it perhaps adds to the understanding of how powerful abuse can be and carry through the generations. Tell us the story about your mother and Josephine. My mom was um, the daughter of, um, of a police officer. My grandfather was a police officer, and um, her mother was a stay-at-home mom. And um, my mom was somewhat of a tomboy, despite my grandmother's insistence that she be a very feminine um, girl. And um, my mother loved animals, and she discovered this chicken in her neighborhood, and that became her pet. Um, and she loved this chicken, took her everywhere and cared for her and, you know, really became very devoted to her. And while my mother was at school one day, uh, my grandparents had Josephine slaughtered and served her to my mother at dinner, not telling her that it was Josephine until she was actually eating uh, the meat. And this was... Um, this was one of the stories my my mother shared with us. My grandfather was not a uh, not a nice man, and um, really, just from the tidbits that my mother did share with us, it was very clear that my mother suffered some significant uh, mental and physical abuse. Just the idea that. It- I mean, it's hard to wrap your brain around what that little girl would have felt like uh, with Absolutely. Uh, her parents making such a cruel, cruel pronouncement at the dinner table. Yes. You talked about, as you were a youngster in school, you had to really navigate going to the bathroom. Why was that? Mm. Yes, that was uh, 
that was one of my earliest memories, something that filled me full of shame um, in kindergarten as I would, um, there were times that I would have um, blood in my underwear and was afraid that I would be caught or found out. You know, at that time in, in kindergarten classes, uh, the bathrooms were right in the classroom. They were in the back of the classroom. Uh-huh. And there was great fear. I had, I had fear of, I had great fear of even pulling down my pants. And um, it was a painful, painful time. You know, the, the fact that you experienced all of that pain and shame and everything that we've been talking about and are able here today to talk about it as an adult in a, in a happy and healthy relationship of your own, is, it, it's extraordinary and it speaks to your courage. Thank you very much. Let's fast forward a bit. There was, it was not okay for you to leave home and go to college. It was not okay for you to leave home and do much of anything. Your parents, as uh, off-putting and abusive as they were, were also as clinging and uh, boundary-free. Yeah. Uh, but you found a way, you found yourself at FIT. In I New, did. In New York. Tell folks what FIT sure. is and what that experience was like. Sure. Well, I, I want to backtrack for just a half a second and say you can imagine what it was like to have grown up in that house, to finally turn 18, have the opportunity to go away to, uh, go away to college, and I became terrified that I was disappointing my parents and, and actually ended up staying home for two more years before I made my way to FIT, uh, the Fashion Institute of Technology in, in New York City. And I was, I was really lost academically. I was never a good student. I had no idea what to do, and um, a friend, a woman that I dated briefly, uh, was interviewing at FIT, and she asked me to go along with her, um, which I did, and as she was in her interview, I started going through the course catalog and found something magical called display and exhibit design, and I thought, that is me. This is where I belong, and um, I, I applied, much to my parents' dismay, um, they were not happy about it at all for multiple reasons, um, but I was accepted, and that felt like my ticket out. Felt like my, like my, my get out of jail free. You had many relationships along the way. Um, talk to us about Catherine. Yes. So Catherine, oh boy, um, my my heart is still full. <laughs> uh, I had been. Before I met Catherine, I had been involved um, with a man, and, um, and I really panicked when I started to have significant feelings for him. Ended that, I meet Catherine at a, at a party, and uh, I was immediately smitten, and she was the most accepting person, woman I had ever met, and I um, quickly fell in love, I, head over heels, and... And I learned in that relationship, which lasted about three years, that I was really good at being in a relationship, in a committed relationship. And in many ways, you know, she became um, a savior. You know, my my parents loved her. Uh, They treated me um, with more respect. Um, My father could not hide his excitement that I would be carrying on the our. 
family name uh, with the idea that we'd have children. And Catherine entered and really, and really changed me in many ways. I remain very grounded in my belief that ending the relationship with my parents was the best decision I've ever made for myself and for my survivor. A powerful one, certainly. Yes. You yes. are a board member of Taking Back Ourselves. What's that? Taking Back Ourselves offers uh, experiential weekends for women, uh, women survivors of sexual abuse, any form of sexual abuse. It is um, Mikkel Rao, who is the founder, has been working with survivors, male and female, of sexual abuse for her entire uh, career as a therapist. And um, I've experienced uh, this version of working with men uh, in these weekends, and this is an organization that's focusing on women, and it is profound, incredible work. Uh, it is an opportunity for women to heal on the deepest level of being heard, of feeling safe, and finding ways to navigate life. For the person listening uh, today, uh, for the male survivor, or, or the, the male who doesn't quite experience his own sense of survival, what do you say to him? What do you say to them? I say that, um, that healing is possible, that finding a way to live a true and authentic life and a rewarding life is possible, but that it um, takes commitment and, and work. Um, but I think that what I would love for any male survivor to, to hear is that, um, that it can get better. It really can. And that you matter and that you're believed and, you know, that you can heal. You are a uh, registered speaker uh, with the RAIN Network. Can you tell us about the RAIN Network? That uh, RAIN is incredible. It's a national network, um, and it, the work that they do is, is just incredible. They, their outreach is enormous. That's actually a resource that I went to um, to look at statistics, and which is really, you know, the statistics are horrifying. It's such a great place to, um, to understand sexual abuse and the, the broad ramifications. Um, they, their website is just the most thorough and supportive that I've encountered. And, um, and being a registered speaker which means basically that I may get an email and be asked to speak to a college campus or to a group of survivors or any other such form. Um, yeah, they do amazing work. And that's R-A-I-N-N, the RAIN Network. That's correct. That's correct. The um, the story that you have told and that you're telling, uh, the statistics are what? I, again, lots of people assume when you think about abuse, and certainly when you think about sexual abuse, many people still think, oh, that just happens to girls and women. But that's not true. What are some of the statistics? Well, they say that, um, you know, for if you were going to use the broadest definition of sexual assault or sexual abuse, that the numbers are one in six for men and one in four for women. Yes. And even, even with the way the climate has changed, um, it's still drastically underreported. I mean, there's so much shame associated with sexual assault, both against men and women. 
Um, men seem to have a harder time admitting it and talking about it um, because the, you know, the deeper uh, belief that men should be strong, um, yeah, it just makes me crazy, really. Uh, yeah, it is pretty remarkable. Yes. Larry, tell us where we can get information, more information about Breaking the Rules and the other resources that you've referenced. Absolutely. Um, Rain has a great website. It's rainn.org. Um, one in six.org is also an incredible resource for men. Um, taking Back Ourselves is another one that I love. Uh, and in terms of the book, BreakingTheRules.com um, provides resources uh, as well and more information on the book and, and my own personal journey into recovery. And that's Breaking the Rules, R-U-H-L-S, as in Larry that's Rule. Right. Larry, thank you so much for the work that you are doing. Thank you for this book, and thank you for spending time with us here at Mind Talk today. Thank you so much. It was an honor. And folks, thank you for joining us today on this edition of Mind Talk. Mind Talk is brought to you daily as an educational public service. It is not intended to replace any work that you might choose to do with a medical, mental health, or other professional. Mind Talk is available to you on demand by going to mindtalk.org. That's M Y N D T A L K dot O R G. Mind Talk is also available by downloading the Mind Talk app from either iTunes or Google Play. I'd love to know where in the world you are as you're listening to Mind Talk today, so send an email to me at Pamela. P-A-M-E-L-A at mindtalk.org. Mindtalk is produced by Jim Brown and 26 by 2 Communications. And I want you to remember always, always, if it is unacceptable, then it's unacceptable. Take care.